What is up, guys? Welcome to episode two of the Fractal Exploratorium. I am your host, DJ Brule, and joined is my audio engineer friend, Nit Tantillo. Mostly friend. Mostly what's friend or audio engineer. <laughs> what's up, guys? What does that fully entail? In today's episode, I'm going to talk a little bit more in depth about my idea of fractal architecture, but more specifically, I'm going to talk about how that relates to the different types of architecture. So we're just going to hop right into it. And first of all, I would like to talk about, we're going to, I'm going to mostly be talking about modern architecture. So that won't involve uh, neoclassical architecture, which is the architecture that you'll find at like the capital. Uh, that's considered neoclassicals Roman form of architecture that's been kind of revived. And especially since we're based off of the Democratic Republic, just like Rome was, it's kind of a fitting architecture. So I won't be talking about architecture that old. I'll be talking about architecture uh, post-Industrial Revolution for the most part. That is the architecture which we are most familiar with in the sense of how it functions, since our society is mostly built off of the type of society that was constructed and changed during the Industrial Revolution, which has ever since then dictated kind of all of our lives. Uh, dictated from how we're supposed to go and what we learned in elementary school. We learned basics to kind of fit in the uh, society that was constructed by that. And a lot of that is driven in the architectural styles of the Industrial Revolution. So that is something that I will be talking about. But this episode is mostly revolving around the different styles of architecture post-industrial revolution. I feel like this is your wheelhouse, the the architecture thing. So I'm excited to uh, kind of see what we get into here today. Yeah, uh, ar- architecture, like, like I said in um, other episodes, and I'll, and I'll keep saying over and over again, is kind of an overarching way of constructing everything. So it's not just form and building. It's going to involve many other things like fractals for example and most of those things will tie back into it but this is essentially uh mostly what i'm familiar with is the uh, actual architectural styles so what most of us are used to is a um, specific type of architecture that we see all the time when you think architecture you think of like cities most of your housing that you live in and in your schools and uh, buildings we work in, those are mostly the buildings we uh, see around our lives. So that's mostly what we're familiar with. And architecture is not just limited to buildings, though, is it? I mean, technically, isn't you know a light pole a form of architecture? Uh, you you could say that. Uh, I mean, it really depends on if you want to get down to the nitty gritty about. Uh, there's many debates that could be had. About the true definition of architecture. But in its most classic sense, not really. Yeah, well, I mean, in in the classic sense, uh, the, I am going to talk about avant-garde architecture also, which is a little out there. Avant-garde, like the, the music we used to play. <laughs> yes. Yes, like, like crazy noise rock bands. There exists those type of people in the architectural community, too. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not knocking on their stuff because I actually uh, subscribe to some. You're a little bit avant-garde in your own way. Avant-garde, and I would say philosophical approach to the problem of dealing with architecture. And you notice I say problem. 
of dealing with architecture and that's because nowadays i find our architecture is at odds with our natural behavior and natural habitats but i got a little sidetrack that question um what i was going to talk about is postmodernism so postmodernism gave rise to most of the type of architecture you see around now this is post uh 1945 1940s after the war there was uh, a kind of uh, a modernization i mean what we see it as modern that would be on uh, skyscrapers uh, tall skyscrapers because our ability to build vertically was greatly increased afterwards and that's when you see classical buildings like the empire state building it was built during like the the golden age of skyscrapers so um, postmodernism is kind of kind of fit that that kind of fits that description. So it is it is a lot of buildings that you see around office buildings when you go into a city. You know they're rather a lot of them are square like this one. I'm ta- you know looking at that is kind of square. Yeah, it's kind of bland. Pretty uh, what what is not polygonal? It's very it's just very bland. Well, it's just a square. Yeah, <laughs> and that's built up high. So I, I mean, I understand it. It is rather pragmatic architecture. It is architecture that has uh, form followed by function, which I agree with, and and I say this all the time: form must always follow function, never the other way around. But these buildings are they're they're for they're practical to someone who sees something basic as being practical but to me what they are is they're buildings that are extremely at odds with our environment and our natural functions they're rigid they're unwielding and unbending and they do not have any place in a complex dynamic system such as our earth's natural ecosystems and as well as our sociological behavior doesn't have any place in that so but why because postmodernism architecture is, is rigid. There's a lot of straight lines. There's a lot of boxes, and a, every room is the same and uh, the same repeating pattern, but not like a fractal repeating pattern, like literally just repeating the same shape, geometric shape, over and over and over again. Geometric, that was the word I was looking for when I said polygonal. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's why I'm saying they're at odds because our society isn't rigid. It tries to be rigid, but us by nature, we are not rigid. And our ecosystem and our natural world is not rigid. So why would humans be adjusted to a more rigid uh, function, you know, r- rigid line of thinking, if our natural ecosystem that we grew up in and evolved in and was able to survive in is an ever-changing, ever-dynamic ecosystem? Why would, why would we be, why would we subscribe ourselves to rigid routines? That doesn't make any sense. And that's why before we had civilization, before the Neolithic revolution gave rise to um, large groups amount of people in a socioeconomic system, um, before that we were hunters and gatherers and we, we, we were a mobile species. We moved around from location to location. We didn't stop at any one place. And we changed with uh, the dynamics of the environment. And right now our cities, they do not change with the dynamics of our environment. They are static cities, static buildings. And um, f- for example, with like a, a, a place that is snowy, 
So in a city where uh, snow occurs, uh, for example, like New York or um, Boston, a place that has heavy amounts of snow, that is a dynamic input that is coming from the, the natural world. That is a changing of a season. And right now, our buildings and our cities are designed to not deal with that. As a matter of fact, there are nuisances to us that we have to clear off. We have to go and plow the road from all the snow. Well, why is that? Why is it that our cities didn't react to that changing environment and still be within the confines of what uh, is necessary for human function? Why do we have to go through the extra effort to push it around? Because it is at odds. There is ways and methods where we could have aligned our cities and designed them in such a way where the snow doesn't fall on it in that specific way. Now, I, I don't know any specifics, but I just know that if I was given the task or the problem and really looked into it and looked at a few scientific studies, I could come up with some sort of method that would allow for that street to be clear or for that street to not even be necessary in the first place, maybe, by changing urban sprawl and how close we build our buildings together. My point being is that we need to build dynamic buildings. Right now, we construct static buildings that are uh, a foundation, a wall, and a roof. That is just a static building. You build it, you're done, you walk away, and then you maintain it for the rest of its life until it is no longer able to be repaired. That is currently the state of how we make buildings. As we know, nature doesn't care much for that. And if any anyone has ever watched Life After People, you see how quickly... And how much at odds our natural our natural um, city ecosystem really is. And I call it an ecosystem because city is a new biome. It is a new ecosystem with its own flora and fauna. And you see that in domesticated city dwellers like pigeons and raccoons. Those raccoons existed in nature, but not in the same since they do in the city and their behavior matches that and it's interesting to see that cities kind of took on their own dim dimension and that there is some interplay between natural ecosystems that have been taken over by the cities due to urban sprawl and the city's new involvement in that ecosystem now that ecosystem you could tell is at odds with what the natural system originally was before the city was built there and I am interested in buildings and cities that do not come in and completely redefine the environment, but find a way to work itself into the ecosystem where it's an active participant. And the type, first type of architecture I'm going to talk about, and what that leads me into, is arcology. Now, what arcology is, it's a type of architecture is a field creating design principles for a very densely populated area. And what the goal is, is to deal with the problem of the increased amount of population and city density and creating those buildings to be in tuned with the, et the ecology around it. So having a low ecological impact on the human inhabitants and on the natural um, land that's being built on. So now there are some examples of arcology and a lot of it you'll notice isn't just one individual building, but rather 
uh, collective of buildings that make up a function of a city. So we actually have one here in Arizona uh, called Arkansante. And it's kind of a small community. It's not very big, but it's a small community of all their buildings. And it has a low environmental impact and blends in with the natural environment around it. I always drive by that exit when I'm going up to Flagstaff, I think. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah, right. It's on the way if you're going by the Prescott turnoff. Yep. So if you're not from here, you won't understand what we're talking about. But <laughs> I just thought it would be a, 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 a worthy side note. But it, but it is because it is a great example of arcology because it is uh, blending in. And, and not to mention, it's also high desert. So it's an area that doesn't have a lot of water availability. It has a lot of energy availability. If you want to use solar power, which a lot of... Uh, Arkansante does, but it's also a place with a lot amount, a vast amount of open land, and with a compact uh, ecological uh, living center that Arkansante is, there's a lot of natural land to be seen around it. It doesn't encroach on the environment too much because it has a low environmental uh, footprint, I like to call it. So, arcology has been the subject of many different uh, sci-fi films that deal with utopias and also dystopias. Uh, there's, there's even a game uh, called Bioshock that deals in a dystopian arcology. And what that is, is that the, the city of raptures is what uh, arcology city would be like, but in a dystopian setting, because, you know, it's fun to have those nice little um, advanced environmental ventimentally low impact uh, cities go under and be a dystopia it's fun to play in that settings now the the reality of them is is much different and they're neither a dystopia nor a utopia i'm not suggesting that this is the end-all design and that we're going to all sit around the fire and sing kumbaya and that everything's going to be all good like no, no one's saying that a lot of people get that idea when i'm talking about a, an advanced society that is you know, you know transcends our current way of thinking and it, it, it isn't that, but it is a new design theory that is going to be necessary for us to move forward and have a sustainable future. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not even advocating for this like utopian future. I'm advocating for like human survival and like, and like sustainable living throughout the next uh, few centuries, you know, just, just the rapid changing of our environment. And, you know, you can argue to what the cause of that environment is. But my whole point here is that even if, you know, the, the whole debate whether or not, oh, the climate is the climate changing or humans changing it is not even relevant when you think of these buildings still need to operate in a dynamic system because the earth changes no matter what. You know, that's a proven fact. You can't say, oh, the earth will never change. No, the earth will always change. So whether it happening naturally or human made is kind of irrelevant. Either way, we should probably start building our buildings to uh, interact with a dynamic system and quit being static because that just, it, it's wasteful too because then we end up with old buildings that just are just crap and they, and they fade away and, and they're no good. Again, like I said, if you watch the show Life After People, things go to hell pretty quickly. <laughs> Before you know it, the skyscrapers are coming down. And it's kind of crazy to think. Now, I'm not saying let's build something that's invincible to the elements, because that's virtually impossible. 
I'm saying let's build something that is more malleable, something that responds better to the environment around it. Um, what about like space? Uh, what are those things called that those little pods that you've gone on vacation to? Are those em- environmentally pods? Do you yeah. mean you mean earthships? Earthships. Yeah, like, that's going to be an entire episode. <laughs> but I mean, are those environmentally? You know. They are environmentally sustainable. Yes. And, and I would almost consider the community, because it is a community up there called um, the Greater Earthship Community. So it even has community in the name. That is, I could consider that kind of an arcology. It's kind of an unofficial arcology. It's not like Art and Sante where they're like, this is going to be an arcology. They kind of just, this is just kind of what happened. The um, architect um, by the name of Michael Reynolds just was he just left architecture school and decided he was going to go build buildings out of beer cans and soda cans. And as you know, that seems kind of, you know, crazy to go do just I'm out of architecture school time to go. Let's go build out of cans. I think, I think I'll do that. But what he's managed to do there is actually quite brilliant. And that'll have to be an entire episode because I could go on and on and on about airship design i don't think it's the end all though and like i said i still i, I took elements from the airship and, and elements from the archaeology and you'll notice that as a common theme is that all these architectural types that i talked about even if i dislike the architectural type there's probably something i took away from it that is going to build to my idea of fractal architecture and it's it's all gonna it's all gonna come together and as far as i know i haven't seen any style of architecture that is like the type of fractal architecture I'm going to sit and describe to you. Now, there has been architecture that is supposed to interact with its environment in the way I'm talking about, and that is called interactive architecture. So I'm going to go into a uh, quick little uh, example of a um, building built in the style of interactive architecture that I heard about recently on a TED Talk. So what this guy did in, in his uh, architecture firm is they, um, they were doing this um, event at an expo. So kind of like an architectural expo. I don't, I don't remember exactly what the event was called, but uh, he showed off this really cool building and it was an interactive architecture. And what it was is it was a little cafe and a little like information booth at this um, event. And the architecture was made out of water. The walls were made out of water that was continuously falling and there was no doors and there was no windows. And what, what it did, what the building did is it sensed when you were walking near it. And when you walked near it, the sensing would stop the water flow above your head. So it made like a, a temporary doorway. And after you walked past it, the water would close back down behind you. And the building could be raised and lowered depending on wind. So if wind was coming out the side of the of this um, water, the water wouldn't get blown into the building because uh, the building would reduce its own wind shear by lowering down if it sensed the water was getting too full off uh, kilter. So that's some, that's reactive in real time to the environment. That it sensed that wind is happening and sensed that people were moving in and out of it meaning there was no set door. You could walk in any angle of the building and the water would close back up around you. Now, that's not like a fully sealed 
uh, building, but that's just an example of how that kind of innovative thinking could lead to something that's interactive to not even just the human element, but also the environmental element. So both those elements it reacts to, you know, and what's interesting is just, you know, imagine for a second, if you've ever been into a building that has a door in a stupid place and it's like, God damn, why the hell is that door over there? Like that's kind of a terrible place to put the door. Well, all architects can do is guess where they think the best place would be to walk into the house. But that's them trying to guess all of human behavior. And what's interesting is that if you set up an interactive architectural piece like that, where the door was in from any direction, you could probably start to track people's patterns of where they're walking. And over time, get an analytical graph or a heat map that showed where people were more likely to walk into the building. That makes more sense for the building to face the way then. Because that's the way people are going to be walking into it. That's the way that's the most convenient. And that's the way that functions within a complex dynamic system, such as our social economic system. So for whatever reason that people come into said building a certain way, you want to take advantage of that in the design is what you're saying. Yeah. In an interactive building, you can do that because it's not static. The door doesn't have to stay in one place. The front of the building doesn't have to stay in one place. That's the point of what I'm get, what I'm getting at. How this, um, you know, this interactive architecture building uh, works. Now, you know, this wasn't an expo, and it was very well. It wasn't very practical because it was just water. I mean, it was a fun little, almost like interactive sculpture, so to speak. But what I want to do is I want to take that further and look at how we can make buildings practical buildings, not just an expo, but how we could create them to make a lot more sense. And again, the reoccurring theme is building a building that can react in real time to changes in its environment. And that is the real key to why humans are so successful. We're successful because we can think in real time. No other animal has the ability to think and change uh, what they can do in real time. Yeah, we can make decisions and our, our minds, you know, work on the run. Well, as far as adapting to environmental change, other animals have to wait generations in random mutations to get them to adapt to the new environment. You know, it's survival of the fittest, which I should say is more like survival of the best well adapted, the best to adapt to your scenario and environmental change. And we have this unique ability where we can, we have technology. We can change every bit of how we live depending on how the environment changes. Like, for example, uh, within humans, we are able to change to a environment that rapidly changed like the, um, the uh, ice age. And the way we could do that is we didn't have to think about, oh, we need to randomly adapt a fur coat to be able to survive. Like we have to, like the genes have to favor uh, a random mutation in someone having extra amount of fur that keeps them warmer, that makes it so they can pass their genes down to generations after that. And what we're able to do is we can react in real time and make a coat. <laughs> we can put on a fur coat 
No other animal can adapt in real time like that. They have to rely on random mutation for survival. We don't. We can react in real time to changes in our environment, whether they happen yesterday or if they're happening over the course of thousands of years, which is what the Ice Age happened, which is still too fast for other animals to be able to catch up, like the woolly mammoth and the saber-toothed tiger. It almost puts us at an unfair advantage. Well, it does and it doesn't, because look where that unfair advantage got us. It got us to creating nuclear weapons and holding our whole entire country, not just country, but our whole world hostage (laughs) in a stupid arms race of mutual destruction. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, with all power comes great responsibility. And uh, the humans may be uh, skewing that a little bit. Well, part of the problem might come from our ability to change ourselves in real time. We can now change the environment in real time, which is too fast for the rest of the environment to be able to catch up. And just because we can change the environment doesn't mean we don't need it, which is which is why I, I'm I'm in the um in the camp of let's not save the planet. Let's save us. Planet will be fine. Planet will go on just fine without us. You know, it will be a we'll be an afterthought. We'll just be. Uh, a, gl- a glimpse in the cosmic scale of time, which is minimal to none. And that can happen really quickly. So yeah, I, I'm not trying to be an alarmist about the issue, but our architecture has to change. Plain and simple. It has to have a uh, paradigm shift in the way of thinking and, and the way we approach architecture. And we can't just keep going about building bots buildings and building the generic buildings we've been building. So I kind of have, I, I, I take issue with that. And in, in many other episodes, there will be many other themes that will tie into uh, the need to change our architecture from static buildings to dynamic buildings. So in this podcast, I'm going to do a new segment called uh, Random Fun Facts. So these will be facts that actually, they're not really going to tie, you know, I know how I say every subject ties into it, but these ones are really just going to be throwing out their facts that are just for the sake of learning something interesting and new. Maybe no one or not many people know. So in this segment... I'm going to talk about the origin of the meme. So <laughs> everyone's heard of the internet meme. I feel like this is something that's a lot more de- uh, up my alley rather than the whole architectural fractal, you know, speak that kind of goes over my head sometimes. So this, yeah, is, this no, is where I, I live, DJ. I, I know how you are about memes. I don't keep up on memes. I remember the last, uh, uh, all the rage was Harambe. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you're about two years too late. Yeah, then. that kind of dates uh, where <laughs> I'm at. Yeah, that doesn't date the podcast. That dates more along the lines of how far behind pop culture I am. Yeah, DJ doesn't really totally associate himself with that uh, too deeply. So, I, I mean, I'm interested in memes, obviously. What do you have to say about memes? So I'm going to talk about where the origin of the meme comes from, or rather, um, who coined the term meme. So the term meme comes from evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, (laughs) and he coined the term in his Uh, 1976 book, The Selfish Gene, which is something I'm definitely, The Selfish Gene, we're going to talk about, other episodes are going to involve people like Richard Dawkins, we're going to mention him 
probably a decent amount because the evolutionary biologist and as i was just talking about before was evolution so 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 it, it all ties in i knew it that loosely ties in i knew that there was no way it somehow something wouldn't come up because the, the me the me what we're going to talk about right now doesn't really have well i guess it does uh it's kind of difficult to, to not tie everything back to what i'm talking about but this one, I'm really, I really try to make it random. <laughs> I try to. This is it's loosely tied to uh, the the rest of the podcast. But he coined the term the meme uh, as an idea, behavior, or style that spreads from a person within a culture. So it's not like a gene that is passed down through generations. It's a uh, it's like a cultural gene, a meme. <laughs> what? So it actually, so somebody actually sat down and thought this through. Yes, before it became way before actual, the internet was actually well, a thing. Well, there's actually like psychology behind, you know, the internet. I mean, or I mean, not even internet, but like social media psychology and stuff. And like, there's like a lot that goes on behind that. Well, yeah, because it, it's it's not just it, it, you go, oh well, social media. It's a new thing called media. No, no, no. I mean, this has always been an embedded social. Uh, sociological behavior right w- within us i mean now the the internet kind of just amplifies everyone's voice and opinions out there on a huge worldwide web right and so um what what memes do is they convey a particular phenomenon uh theme or um or meaning represented by the meme not always a uh, appropriate one no <laughs> but see the, the the thing is is that they um is is that memes take on their own evolution kind of like our genes do and, and they're just kind of cultural understandings like you'll see you'll see a meme and always kind of relate to it you know oh that's exactly what i've thought and you don't yeah. even have to see words you just right. have to see like an implied meaning right and a, uh, a facial expression or something yeah and, and if you notice you always, you always see the type of meme where you're just like i just get that for some reason like i don't know why i get it but i just get it it's almost like instinct in a way. Well, it's it, exactly, and that's how it's um, well, that's how it's passed down. Is an an internet meme just took on, you know, just took on that same meaning, but on the internet. And he obviously, when he was writing this book, didn't think about the internet because it wasn't around. You know, computers were just <laughs> barely around during that time. <laughs> so yeah, coined by uh, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins in his book, uh, the nineteen seventy six book, The Selfish Gene. Whoa. So this was actually literally coined that long ago? Yes. But it wasn't until, you know, five or six years ago that it became an internet phenomena. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it it's just, it, it was inevitable to happen. And the meme just describes the concept, you know, it, and, and it just so happened to take on the word meme that he coined. Right. You know, they just, they just so happened to take that on. I guess it does make sense, though. I feel like all those things that seem a little bit ignorant on the surface, you know, tend to always have something behind them that might actually tie it all together. But you know what's really funny is if you go and look up Richard Dawkins' meme, <laughs> you'll see um, a, a, a picture of him and saying, <laughs> like, I invented the meme before it was cool. And he's yeah. like sitting there with his glasses. Yeah. Like <laughs> That's hilarious. And it's just kind of, it's a meta meme. <laughs> It's like, oh, he he actually did come up with it. It's a meme of the guy that made memes. Well, th- that's how I saw it, you know, because I'm a big fan of Richard Dawkins. Isn't and his... that kind of like fractal? 
It's a, a meme of a guy who made memes, and fractals are like pattern. It is that. That's a stretch. All right, if you fully <laughs> just want to start tying it right, so it was supposed to be a random fact, but apparently it isn't. Yeah. Well, everything ties into fractals. Well, right? uh, every segment I try this, I'm probably going to try to make it a random fact, and then it's going to somehow tie in. I'm going to try and pull it out of every fact. I'll try and make it relevant. Yeah, but it's not a bit of a stretch. What you said is definitely not a bit of a stretch. <laughs> It's true, actually. And it definitely fits in with a, uh, a deeper examination of uh, our sociological behavior. Uh, the internet is a fractal. Well, so. Deej, thank you for the fun fact. I'm going to have to add some cool sound effects in there to make sure that the fun fact is uh, properly I'm introduced. spice up the fun fact. <laughs> uh, I just, you're taking the whole random out of it because now it doesn't seem random. Oh, ra- random fun <laughs> fact. I apologize. We're still working on the name of that segment, so... Well, it didn't seem very random, but uh, it was fun fact. I thought it was fun. So good stuff. And back into the different types of architecture. So I, I talked a little bit about how uh, arcology and how interactive architecture works back into what I want to do for fractal architecture. Now, see, here's the thing. Interactive architecture doesn't fully encompass what I want fractal architecture to do. So it, it is it is reactive to its environment and it's somewhat reactive to initial conditions, which we talked about fractals needing as uh, initial conditions to uh, develop a pattern over iterations. So I just take aspects from a lot of this. So the interactive architecture the aspect I take is its ability to react in real time. And the next style of architecture I'm going to talk about, po- postmodern architecture, uh, the one I, I kind of briefly touched on before with the, you know, the rigid styles. Uh, I actually do like a certain aspect of this, and that's the philosophy of form follows function. And you know, maybe this took it a little too far because this doesn't have much form. They mostly have function and their function isn't great. And like I said, we need to rethink the fundamentals of what we think the function of the building should be. And these buildings and the rigid designs and the rigid ideas of how things should function aren't great. And you end up with buildings that don't make a whole lot of sense. And one of the things that drives me crazy Drives me absolutely insane living here in Phoenix where it gets to up to 115 degrees is a building made entirely out of glass. <laughs> it's time for the architecture to talk some <laughs> Well, I, I, I mean, this isn't, it's insane. It's 115 degrees in, in, oh my God. So isn't that, I mean, isn't glass also just like magnifying the heat? It, it causes the greenhouse effect. Just try in the summer day, if you live here or even in a place that doesn't even get that hot, if the sun's been shining on your vehicle all day and you go to get in it, it's insanely hot. It's way yeah, hotter. It it's awful. And, and, and in my um, uh, uh, geology class, where we studied uh, some aspects of geomorphology, which is a lot of what I'm going to talk about in reactive buildings, uh, one day we took our heat sensors, our infrared sensors, and we went and measured the temperature of the area. And this was October, so for Arizona, we were starting to cool down. It felt like winter was going to be here maybe a month or two. And it was 90 degrees. And I was like, okay, well, it's not too terrible. We want to measure the inside of our car. Can you guess anywhere near? Uh, 
132. You know, that actually wasn't a bad guess. Try like 160. Whoa. Inside our cars. Inside. Now, do we feel that? I mean, like, so when it's 122 out and I get inside my car and I'm like, wow, it's even hotter in yeah, here. Yeah, it's am I, am way hotter. Am I truly feeling like 165 degrees? Yeah, you're feeling like around that damn hot. Like, so, this wasn't even the hottest day and it was insane how hot it registered in our car. I wonder, like, what our capacity is for for heat threshold, you know, where, where a human, is, it's just too hot. You know what? Uh, <laughs> this is something I... Wish I knew off the top of my head. Well, and, let's find out. And and I don't. So I mean, because I got to imagine it gets. I mean, one hundred twenty-two is pretty much the hottest it gets here. And this summer it didn't even get up there, but it it gets like obscenely, you know, hot. And depending on who, how humid it is outside, it can get dangerous when you get inside that car and you touch a seatbelt buckle or something. Well, that's why people freak out about if people leave their kids in the car. Yeah, and call the problem. cops on them. It, it's a huge problem. I mean, people die every year. I actually know a few unfortunate situations that have happened within uh, people that, you know, I know. Friends of friends of friends. Well, and, even if they leave a dog in, if you leave a dog in the car with no water and no no air, prepare to come out of the grocery store with your window smashed in because people will do that. People will do that here. If you leave... You're an animal, and people call the cops if you leave your kid in the car. So, okay, I'm trying to find heat capacity of human body. All right, well, we've tangented far enough on that. <laughs> we can't find the answer for you guys, but, you know, write us in if you do find it. Yeah, yeah, sorry, let, let me know, because uh, I'd be interested to know so, 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 sorry to distract you. <laughs> I, we were ta- I can't even remember what we were talking about. Yeah, what were we talking about? Glass. We're, oh, you oh, were, we're talking about glass. buildings suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, post, postmodernism. Oh, geez. Again. Oh, geez, Rick. Oh, again, the, <laughs> the amount of um, heat that our buildings absorb from having these buildings made completely out of windows is insane. Their cooling bill for the summer must be crazy through the roof because they are just like a, a glass greenhouse just ready for the heat absorption. So that that is a building that is not made anywhere near our environment needs. And it, it, it just it doesn't make any sense why those buildings are being built. I, I can't for the life of me understand. I, I try to find out through my my job and... What I've noticed is that, you know, as structural engineers, we don't really worry too much about what the architect's doing. And we don't really understand any bit of what they're designing or why they're designing it. All we know is that we're focused on two things, budgets and deadlines. That is all we are concerned about. So I assume the architect must be as concerned about something similar to just budgets and deadlines. I assume that is what they're concerned about. And that's one of the major fundamental problems of what we're building. Because I work on projects that just are, are just failures of an architectural form. They, they don't fit into any style even. I mean, I just postmodernism can fit the uh, philosophy that went behind building it, which is just we need to put up some walls and a roof. We, you know, someone needs some walls and uh, a roof built. So let's just build that. Well, that, that building doesn't have any connection to uh, to humans anymore. It has connections to budgets and deadlines. 
So you're suggesting that we're based on a quantitative, you know, approach rather than a qualitative approach. Well, why go outside the bots and make something risky? Uh, in companies, uh, risk needs to equal a high reward. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense, which I get. I'm not knocking on companies for doing that, but the underlying system is what the problem is. And the underlying system is what makes it so that is the most prudent thing to do as a company. The most prudent thing to do as a company is to get projects out fast and get them done under budget because that's how your company, your institution and company is going to survive. Otherwise you're going to go under. So, I mean, one of the major issues is because of our use of monetary systems and monetary incentives. And this too will be a subject of an entirely different podcast where we will talk about our economic systems or uh, socioeconomic system and you know how it's going to need to function differently with a new style of architecture which is an another point in which how uh other ideas and and, and other watts of life are going to intersect so you know the, even economists We'll find certain parts of this interesting because I will have to deal with that. But just from my own experience working in the construction field for about a year and a half now is that the architects just do not have any interest to do anything that goes outside of what we typically do and what we're comfortable doing with what we know makes money. No one is has any incentive to be innovative because you can just get the job done and get the project out. So no need to do anything that is too outside the bots or too outside the lines. And that is one of the major issues right now that I am seeing and our lack of ability to come up with anything new. You know, but before this podcast, I was looking up some interesting buildings that fit into more like what my style is in more advanced architecture and honestly i was finding them in like every other country except for ours i was finding i was not finding why, why do you think that is why is it just like you know it's safe to do it this way and you know it's the time old tested way and that's what we're comfortable with so that's what we go with because nick we're in land of the corporate empire uh, we're, we're, we're land of uh, of a place that is ruled by uh money interest and, and and you know that's that's partially to blame of uh, uh of having our capitalist system which when i say when i rail against the capitalism i'm not saying that it's a terrible system and that you know communism is good because that is definitely not good we already tried that system and it failed already communism already was tried and it did not work but we are now trying out a new system you know it's been around for a little while now and it's starting not to work and we either change it redefine it or you know come up with a completely new system and, and, and fundamentally that system has to change at its fundamental basis just changing how your buildings function isn't enough we gotta change the incentive behind it and get everyone to start building in a manner that is more sustainable with our environment and i don't think that can happen with the use of money incentive i think it's going to take visionaries and I think it's going to take architects who are hardworking and don't care about the bottom line. Care deeply about, you know, their, their mission. 
I feel like it's just, you know, it's kind of cliche, but it's just like anything, you know, you need those inspirational, like people that are leading the charge that are actually, you know, dedicated to their craft and, you know, committed to their ambitions rather than committed to just a paycheck at the end of the day or, you know, preserving what's already in place. Yeah, no, you're right. It can't be someone that's one of the people that just wants a paycheck at the end of the day. It has to be visionaries, people who want to push the world forward for the greater good. And the, the, the greater good is what we should all strive to contribute to. It's what I feel naturally compelled to contribute to. And instinctively, it is kind of compelling because that was always our function as a human in groups and hunters and gatherers is that we all served our different roles and we enjoyed serving them because it gave us a sense of belonging and purpose and meaning behind serving the greater good of the herd. And again, this is not, you know, and, and it's crazy that I have to say this, but I do because it is not an endorsement of communism. And every time I say this, people are like, well, that's communism. No, no, uh, I'm not saying that's communism. Trust me. I know you're not a communist each. Yeah, no, I'm not. And just because it seems like a, a communist theme, it's not. It's a, it's uh, each individual for the collective, but that doesn't mean each individual has to sacrifice his individuality, his or hers individuality. It doesn't have to come at the expense of that. We can maintain our self-individuality and still contribute to the greater good. And contributing to that greater good gives us a sense of purpose and belonging within you know a social system so i i don't see what's wrong with working for the greater good but in our system it's it, the help helping up someone next to you isn't good they're your competition i said why would a business help up his competitor his or her competitor why, why would a business do that well it's unfortunate that we have to view everything as a competition these days as well you know, I was listening to something uh, recently about some musicians and they were talking about how back in the day so it seemed like competition and there were certain, you know, artists or comedians that were competing and now it feels a lot more like everybody's sort of just in it for the greater good. Like, you know, we can't all play shows in LA and Detroit and, you know, Phoenix on the same night. You know, we're all going to be in different places. We should be a team, you know, you know, so I kind of think of architecture and, you know, you know, engineering and all that, you know, in that aspect, it it should be a team effort. I mean, but so should all of American politics. So, I mean, that's a whole nother thing, but we don't, that we don't really talk about here, but you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I do get what you're saying, but it, the thing is, it, it isn't even just team because then you start to split in the camp of my team versus their team, my group versus your group, and it kind of de-evolves into this like, like primeval type of competition where it's I'm part of a group, but my group needs to win, and your group sucks, and. You know, I, I know you like sports and a lot of people do, but that's one of my bones to pick with professional sports because I'll say this. I played little league baseball and I've never seen teams more supportive of each other and just out there to have a good time. And they did prop each other up. And after the game, people would tell you you got a nice hit, even though you just scored a double off of one of their pitches. They'll still say, oh, nice job, because 
you know, it's not, it, 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 you're, you're fighting against, you know, you're battling against each other, but you, it isn't that kind of, um, that hatred you see, it, well, maybe not even hatred, but more like rivalry and more harder competition you see in like the professionals. And, you know, that's why you, you, know, you see teams getting a lot of fights oftentimes. And I never saw that stuff in Little League and I enjoyed the heck out of playing with it you know, playing baseball. And, and like I said, everyone in that was super supportive and would help you up instead of, you know, stomp you down. And that's a good analogy to draw from. Well, it, it, it is because, you know, it's an experience that a lot of people have been through and being part of that team is a nice mentality. As long as you don't think that the other teams can't succeed with you and that you have to, somehow have this you know be at odds with them and be at a competition and now a lot of people might go well that's how nature intended it because nature is extremely competitive yes and no nature also isn't able to think nature just does what nature does there's no um malevolence behind it or a hatred or anger those are all uniquely human emotions now they're they're natural human emotions but they're pretty uniquely human and they might have evolved out of the natural environment, but they're still somewhat at odds and still somewhat at a disconnect from what you know the natural ecosystem. Because, and for what I'm going to give an example of, is there is a ton of symbiotic relationships within nature. There is a ton of them. I mean, I could name just many off the bat if I wanted to. Uh, the birds that clean the teeth of the alligators and they don't eat them. They get nutrients from there and they get their teeth cleaned. Like what, what is he, why is it the alligator just snapped down on it? You know, if he doesn't want to help out, well, just he wants to get helped out too. And it's a team where both of them lift each other up instead of push each other down and they become really successful and really a niche inside of the environment and the ecosystem. They become a pretty uh, keystone type species because they propped each other up instead of tore each other down. So it's a successful, it, it works. It's successful. Like it, it, it's an idea that isn't just out there and, Oh, that's outrageous. Helping out our fellow man. God forbid we help out fellow man. And you know, we, we, we primitively divide ourselves up in these imaginary lines and imaginary lands and then call them different things and make up symbols for them and make up names for them. It's there's so much just like almost like pageantry behind the whole <laughs> nationalistic uh, outlook on things. And right. I get that there has to be there. There's difference in cultures and I'm not saying, okay, let's get rid of countries tomorrow. No, obviously not. Obviously we need to be, in these separate cities and these separate countries because uh, for some sort of reason we can't seem to even get along within our own damn country right you know with, with our own country identity it's hard to even get along then so i'm not advocating for that but i think maybe in the future that might be uh, us dividing up the land and having different countries might seem like an archaic idea to uh our, our future uh relatives way down the line and my whole point is that that's kind of a rigid rule that we set upon how we build. And what I'm, what I'm getting to is that our cities, 
fit the same sort of idea that this is this city separate from that city and that this is its own little area with its own little people instead of something that is more inclusive. So a lot of things, a lot of buildings, everything to be exclusive. If you noticed, if you go out there, you can't just waltz into any building you want. You can't, (laughs) there's a lot of places you can't go. Right. There's a lot of places you're stuck to not being able to go to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and again, I'm not going to say I'm advocating for people to just walk anywhere they want, but it is interesting how much places are restricted for us to go. And when you really think about it, if you go out there and don't, huh, I kind of just want to cruise around and explore some things in the city, you'd be surprised how many things you can explore. You That you cannot? Yeah, that you cannot explore. Right. Restricted access kind of stuff. Yeah. And it, you know, it's kind of interesting to think that our our, our environment isn't... Well, if you're not going downtown for like work, then what are you doing down there? There's nothing else to do down there. There's no sense of placemaking. Right. So you're saying it should, you know, be like you going back to what you originally said, adaptable. You know, when it's not being worked, it should be, you know, something else should be benefiting from it. Well, it should be a part where you go to any part of the city and it's not like, I don't want to be in this part. I want to go to this part that has green parks. Like, and a a lot of my uh, city designs and... Uh, the idea of fractal architecture and its type of architecture, we, um, or me, at least, I'm the only one that's doing it right now. <laughs> Maybe it'll be other people, I hope. Maybe if uh, people are going back and re-listening to episode two after, you know, episode 100 someday. Oh, uh, I hope. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't seem like we're going to run out of things to talk about anytime no, soon. No, I don't think so. It's just going to keep going. Well, um... The next style of architecture I want to talk about is uh, parametricism. So this is considered one of the avant-garde architecture styles, uh, contemporary avant-garde architecture style. And it's kind of a response to postmodern architecture, which I was just talking a ton of crap about. So this is kind of the uh, the remedy to rigid architecture. So so you're not going to talk here. N- no, mm, I mean <laughs> maybe, maybe may- maybe a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about sculpture architecture as I call it, but um, for right now I'm going to talk about uh, the the function of uh, parametricism. Now, one of the um, architects who is pretty famous who use this is uh Zah Hadid and she was an architect that used organic form and uh she used curves in a real elegant way and a lot of her architecture really is uh what you what you call knit flowy <laughs> yeah before the podcast everything DJ was showing me uh I felt like by her was very flowy very uh, curvy, very just smooth almost, right? Yeah, no, no, flo- flowy. I, li- I like the way you, you put it, flowy, as someone who don't, like, is not you know, well-versed in different architectural styles. Uh, the fact that you first fo- thought you thought was flowy was good because, you know, flowy is synonymous with, you know, cohesion and uh, you know, flowing with the, the way things naturally you know, it's flow like like a river. If you float down, you're just going with the going with the flow. 
So, you know, the way you put it was actually perfect because it's meant to have a flow type of uh, architectural layout and it flows with the environment and with the natural movement of uh, people. And that's why a lot of her buildings are really, uh, they're really welcoming to walk into. A lot of them feel very organic and very natural. Right. You, they almost feel like, uh, you know, they have those characteristics of nature that are kind of preserved in the building. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they do. And, and that's that's the point. Well, what that uses is um, parametric equations. Now, if you were to look at a picture of these, these look uh, very oddly similar to fractals. <laughs> they have a kind of uh, fractal appearance to them in, in their in their geometry. And what um, uh, parametricism uses is uh, algorithms and uh, advanced equations to come up with the curves and flow of their architecture. You know, they're using the language of the natural universe, which is mathematics, to come up with usable geometry for humans. Now, parametricism, although it does use variable inputs, such as uh, algorithms and computers, it doesn't quite go far enough for me and it's a great start and the buildings are absolutely stunning and phenomenal to look at and they uh, i pull a lot of uh philosophy from this type of architecture and the fact that they should be um adaptive to the environment and respond to the environment so it's one of the biggest things I, I take from it. Now, the reason I don't consider this fractal architecture and why my style of architecture is a little different is because this isn't driven ex exclusively by uh, environmental patterns. And what I, what I would like to see is a parametric design that is driven by variable outputs of a complex dynamic system. And for this system to be reflected in the geometry and architecture that is created and the building space and the living space that is created. And uh, Zahadid, or Hadid, I don't know how to, how to perfectly, I know it's Zah, but um, her, her style of architecture for the time is definitely phenomenal and is definitely in the step in the right direction of creating what I call organic architecture. So the type of architecture and the last type that I'm going to discuss is sustainable architecture. So this could be considered a very broad area of architecture. Um, people go, okay, well, sustainable architecture can mean, well, to mean, <laughs> to mean a lot of things. And it can incorporate a lot of different styles. Um, but the, the whole thing, the, the most important thing to take away from sustainable architecture is it's architecture that is made to be sustainable within um, an ecological system and sustainable to human living. Does that mean not only in the materials that it, you know it's made of, but also in the, the function of which it's used? Well, mostly the function and how 
most people probably think of sustainable building as a use of solar panels and uh, use of um, saving space, you know, saving space uh, mechanisms like building vertically or um, building compact and, and um, uh, energy conservation is one of the things that's most synonymous with uh, sustainable architecture. Now, sustainable architecture, like I said, is very broad. It's not one specific style. Um, whatever architecture used to um, minimize the negative uh, environmental impact of the building and its uh, efficiency and use in materials and, like I was saying, energy. So you're right. Materials was one of the uh, factors, and you know that's one of the that's one of the most overlooked uh, components of sustainable architecture is like what we actually build with. And one of the things I believe is that I believe architecture firms should have many different specialists, and I think one of them is they should have a um, a chemist, uh, a, a person who is developing new building materials on site for their buildings. So a material chemist would be someone who I would like to see working in an architectural office. And that's rather revolutionary of an idea. Cause I, I, I mean, to me it is cause I've never seen any other architecture firm have that, you know, they usually have architects and drafters like me or a structural engineer or two. They typically never have any of the other Watts of life, which is very interesting to me. You know, this goes back to something I was speaking to about one of my colleagues when I was creating, you know, the podcast business last year, we were having this conversation about, you know, how so many people, you know, going back to the competition thing are, are in competition with each other and, and believe that they can be a jack of all trades and wear all the hats and do everything and be a master of everything. And so many times people miss out on what they can really create by just like not wanting to bring in other experts and collaborate with other people. And I found that, you know, in all areas, whether it's, you know, podcasting or whether it's, you know, it was at my other job doing voiceover, making medical, you know, flashcards. When you give up a certain amount of your pride and you just go and collaborate with other professionals and other people that know what they're doing, you tend to come up with a better, you know, product nine times out of ten because you're not doing it all yeah and you're you're trusting the advice and strong will of other people and that's what we need now trust me when i say i'm one of the type of architects that does want to do it all but the thing is architects always have the tendency to want to do everything themselves i mean for example uh frank lloyd wright wanted to be a structural engineer as well you know and that's one of a running joke in structural engineers is that Frank Lloyd Wright wasn't an actual structural engineer. He was a wannabe, is what everyone thought. Now, he did produce amazing uh, structural engineering feats. Don't get me wrong. Uh, he's one of my favorite of all-time architects. But he did kind of try to take on that role of structural engineer. And he, he, he did all right. But, like, the, obviously, the structural engineers think that he wasn't a real structural engineer. He's more of a wannabe. You know, that's a kind of a running... Dad, you know, in my office, the structural engineering office, when I mentioned Franklin Wright's structural abilities, like, oh, he's a, he was a wannabe. Yeah, that's funny. Structural engineer, you know, he thought he was. So there's another fun fact for you guys. Right yeah, there. Yeah, I guess. I, I guess there's multiple fun facts. <laughs> well, the, the segment keeps going, doesn't stop. 
All all episodes supposed to be fun facts. That's true. It's very true. So all these types of architecture I pull from in my idea for fractal architecture. Even the ones that I'm not a huge fan of, like postmodernism, there's still themes that I think need to be pulled from. And I'm not trying to, uh, I mean, I, I, in a sense, want to reinvent the wheel, but not without looking at the previous wheels that were built. You know, trying to right. reinvent something, but also look in the past at what's worked and what hasn't worked. Right. Possibly incorporate the things that work and, you know, improve upon the things that don't. Well, it, it, it should be like science. It, it should be something we test and we see, oh, that worked or that didn't work. Let's try this. That worked or it didn't work. Now, do you see where the the risk factor comes in? You obviously don't want to try any old building or a building that might fall and kill people. That was the last thing. Right. So it, it needs to stand a meted safety record, like uh, the, the safety concerns. So I'm not saying, okay, no codes. Let's go crazy and experiment. But there should be a platform in which we are able to experiment. Like when they first come up with a car, they crash test that car and they run that car and they do a ton of tests on it and study it and make sure that's a car that'll be uh, released. So there needs to be some sort of testing ground for new buildings and new technology where it's in a place where there's at no risk to humans or at a place where people are willing to push the boundaries and take that risk. And uh, innovation comes with risks. If we don't risk things, then we don't achieve anything great. We don't achieve anything new if we don't risk anything. If we didn't risk human lives to go to the moon, we never would have achieved one of the most amazing, astonishing achievements ever done by humanity. I mean, it literally is one of the best achievements we've ever had. And that was in 1969. Why was that the last time right. we risked something and we made a risky investment? Right. We play it safe and we don't risk anything. And a new style of architecture and reinventing architecture might be a risk, but it's a risk that me, you know, so, someone like me is willing to, I'm willing to take the risk because I think they need to radically change from static buildings to buildings that operate within a complex dynamic system. I envision a future where our cities are not at odds with the environment but are symbiotic with the environment are not at odds with it, but rather living in harmony with and finding that humanity's humanity does have a place within our natural ecosystems and that we have a role to play rather than just destructors of the earth, but creators and guardians right. of this unique and beautiful earth that we have a truly unique pale blue dot that when viewed from in space is an insignificant little blue dot out there. And we need to become masters of our own planet and our ability to live in harmony with our environment is what's going to contribute to the longevity of our race. And when our race conquers the, the world, so to speak, not conquers it um, by stomping over it, but by living in unison with it, we will be able to finally traverse the stars. But until then, we must solve our population problems here on Earth, and we must solve our architecture being at odds with our environment completely. And 
the first step is to try to create radical buildings that prove that the concepts of sustainable architecture will work. I don't believe that my idea of fractal architecture is the end all. And it's an idea that I don't even know will work, but it's an idea I find worth experimenting and finding out. And at its fundamental basis, all fractal architecture really is, is making a building that is dynamic, that works within a complex dynamic system. And there's nobody better to lead the charge than you, DJ. I think you've... I think. Done, I think <laughs> we hope. You know, and, and like you said, you're open to... Yeah, and not even open to, you need to have a lot of other innovators that are in that space and, and in that mindset. And, and man, just, you know, from the outside perspective, you know, like, like we've mentioned other people, I'm kind of, you know, a more general, normal perspective. It's really inspiring to see that at least there's somebody out there and hopefully other people out there that are willing to rally behind something innovative and something new. And, and there's no way you can be the only person. So no. I hope that this podcast is able to, you know, bring attention to that for you. And there, there is brilliant minds in the architecture industry, I'm sure. And right now I would love to hear other architects ideas and see other architects that are willing to do something revolutionary instead of work just for a paycheck and work just for wanting to make something uh, aesthetically pleasing, like a sculpture. You know, there, there's those two types. You either get the too pragmatic where they want to build boxes or crazy where they want to build sculptures. I would like to find revolutionary thinkers that want to reshape the way we build our buildings and the way we decide our buildings to interact with humans and the environment. Awesome, Deej. Thanks, man. Thank you guys for joining us today. If you want or have any questions or comments, you can email me at fractalexploratorium at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram with the handle at fractalexploratorium. I want everybody to have a nice rest of your day or night. Thank you.